Hello, and welcome to the What is X podcast. I'm your host, Justin E.H. Smith. Delighted to have you here. I'm going to explain the rules of the game. As I've described to a number of people already, this podcast is a sort of hybrid between a Socratic dialogue and The Price is Right. There's a bit of a game show vibe to it. But our ultimate goal is to get at the truth, unlike Bob Barker's venue, where the goal is to win prizes. So basically, on each episode, I have a guest on, and we pursue a question of the classic Socratic dialectical form, what is X? And by the end of the podcast, we hope to arrive at a shared definition. We might not arrive at a shared definition. It's not entirely up to us whether we agree or not. Uh, We might end up in disagreement, and we might also end up in what is called in the literature on Plato, aporia. That is, neither of us, after the end of our discussion, has any idea how to define the X in question. So today, we're going to be pursuing the question, what is memory? And my guest, with whom I will be pursuing this question, is Julian Lucas, a writer and critic, a frequent contributor to The New Yorker, and an author who is mostly interested, but not exclusively interested, in art and literature that grapple in various ways with the legacy, legacies in the plural, of the African diaspora. And I thought of Julian in particular uh, when uh, I was thinking about this particular episode because I was so struck by a piece of his that came out about a year ago, or maybe exactly a year ago, or pretty close, in The New Yorker, on reenactments of resistance to slavery in Louisiana, and on the question whether uh, such uh, reenactments, whether this, uh, I take it, new uh, cultural practice uh, can have a beneficial effect uh, in the processing of history. So uh, we're going to be talking about that and many other things besides for the next uh, 37 minutes or so. Welcome, Julian. Thank you so much, Justin. I'm uh, I'm so excited to be here. Um, yeah, in, in that essay, uh, I look at really two phenomena. Uh, one of them was uh, this practice of the Underground Railroad re- reenactment, which mm-hmm. uh, began in Minnesota in the 1980s, mm-hmm. and uh, usually would be a group of young people who would be reenacting escapes north. Uh, from enslavement. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this was sort of a way to incorporate this history of resistance uh, as a kind of educational tool primarily for for Black youth in Mm -hmm. in the Twin Cities. And then the second uh, project that I looked at was uh, the artist Dred Scott's Slave Rebellion reenactment, which was a reenactment of an 1811 uprising in, in Louisiana, uh, which was defeated, but was the, the largest uh, 
uprising of enslaved people in in the United States. So so uh, those two are are a pretty good uh, representative of, of of what I'm interested in, which is uh, if I could hazard a kind of beginning to answering this question about what is memory and particularly what is historical memory, uh, I would say it's a personal relationship to the past, mm -hmm. which is mediated by places, objects, ritual practices. And, and I think what really distinguishes it from history proper is that it's kind of inescapably presentist and, and personal as well. It forces you to orient yourself personally and look at what that history means for present circumstances. That's so interesting. I wanted to come back to the presentism of it. Do you want to tell me about some other projects, your, your other writing projects you've been doing that are uh, uh, also focused on this theme? Because mm -hmm. I'm mostly uh, familiar with your New Yorker piece. Absolutely. Uh, so, so this interest uh, really began for me uh, when I was very young and I was interested in genealogical research. Mm -hmm. And uh, I reached a kind of dead end when I was investigating my father's family, mm -hmm. uh, when I came to my great, great, great grandfather mm -hmm. uh, with the kind of improbable, but I swear it's true name of Moses Lucas. And mm -hmm. uh, Moses Lucas was a uh, Union soldier who mm -hmm. had escaped from a plantation he may have briefly been conscripted into the Confederate army mm. and then escaped uh, and become a soldier in the Union Army. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I learned about him, uh, I became totally fascinated by him. And I reached a point where there was no more information to learn about him because he had been enslaved. And, and so the most I could find were some possible areas where people named Lucas had enslaved workers. And, and I remember this both horrified and fascinated me mm -hmm. because just after all of this experience of learning about uh, my heritage, you know, not just my African-American heritage, but uh, also my mother's family from Germany and Ireland, mm -hmm. I came to a point where there was an aporia and there was kind mm -hmm. of a dead end can go not further. And although that was horrifying because of the circumstances, it really sparked in me a kind of imaginative reckoning because when you when you don't know you're forced to imagine to a certain extent and you're forced to face how much of history has not been recorded for for various reasons so mm -hmm. that kind of inquiry continued for me in college uh, particularly uh, so i studied comparative literature and african and african-american studies and um i began reading the work of the poet uh derek walcott Sure. Yeah. And uh, so uh, one of his works that I was very moved by uh, is a short poem called The Sea is History. Mm -hmm. And uh, he deals with the the old charge that the Caribbean does not have a history, uh, that Africa does not have a history that was traditionally made uh, in Western thought. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of this poem, he says, where are your battles, your monuments, martyrs? Mm. Where is your tribal memory? Sort of this challenging voice from the Western tradition mm -hmm. uh, that is asking, do you even have a history? Are you even a people? Mm -hmm. And the answer is the sea. 
and, and the poem is a kind of extended meditation on viewing the Caribbean landscape at itself mm -hmm. as an equivalent for the cathedrals uh, and libraries, uh, et cetera, and monuments of, of Europe. And so mm -hmm. that really moved me a great deal. And, and it, it got me on the track of thinking about the ways in which writers and artists in the African diaspora mm -hmm. face the same dead end that I had reached in my genealogical research mm -hmm. and how that had opened them to new ways of conceptualizing the past, mm -hmm. uh, new forms of historiography uh, and, and new practices of memory. And then the final step I'll get to is mm -hmm. um, I ended up writing a thesis on Walcott and I became interested in the way that his poetry deals with embodied memory. So mm -hmm. he, his longest poem is this epic called Omeros. Mm -hmm. And it takes place in the St. Lucia of the late 20th century in a contemporary St. Lucia where there are tourists and fishermen and retired British colonels and whatnot. Uh, but flashes of this more long durée history keep emerging uh, and and they happen just in moments of the lives of the characters there's a fisherman who's out on the ocean open ocean and he has an experience of sunstroke mm -hmm. and and he ends up in a kind of dream reverie uh, of you know returning to the africa of his ancestors and walking across the bottom of the ocean uh, to the Caribbean for 300 years. And, and so all of these characters have these kind of physically embodied experiences of the past, mm -hmm. uh, which are kind of alternatives to having a more traditionally Western concrete representations of what we would call collective memory. And I, and I learned that Derek Walcott was drawing on various Afro-diasporic religious traditions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, particularly Haitian Vodun, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, where there's a there's a sort of theology of direct physical encounter with the past, and and maybe I'll stop there in case you have questions. I feel like I've said a oh, lot. I'm just enjoying <laughs> listening to this. Um, you know, I I thought I knew. Uh, whence you sprang fairly well, but I realize now I, I, I never knew before you were a Walcott scholar. Um, oh, so yes, if, totally obsessed. <laughs> I, well, I knew, I, I, I'd, I'd heard you mention him before, but I didn't know that this was a subject of a long-term focused study. That's, that's, that's really cool. We'll get back to what you've been saying. And in fact, mm -hmm. I wanted to rewind a bit and this elides with some of my own current reflections on, let's say, broadly speaking, history and method. You said that memory is distinct from history to the extent that it is inescapably presentist. And you mm -hmm. also said that it is something that necessarily enlists the imagination, the faculty of the imagination, and that this is something that is particularly 
needed for certain kinds of engagement with the past, such as the, mm-hmm. the, the engagement that is typical of member of the African diaspora for whom historical records don't exist necessarily, or you reach a kind of limit in how far back you can draw on uh, birth certificates and other vital statistics and things right. like that. Um, and this makes me think to ask whether the difference between history proper and memory as you're describing it is necessarily so clear. I mean, for one thing, any honest historian will acknowledge that he or she must cultivate the historical imagination, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, An ability not just to rely on documentary sources, but also to bring them to life in a difficult balance that is both not just making stuff up, but Mm -hmm. also uh, not just conveying what's there in the document. Right. And finding that balance is what the goal of any responsible historian ought to be. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one consideration. And another is that historical methods are becoming rather sophisticated at uh, retrieving insights from voices and actors who 50 or even 30 or 40 years ago would have been considered uh, unrecoverable, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That is, people who, because of their position in society, or maybe just people who were around so long ago that there were no records uh, being kept or records that could be preserved long enough, all sorts of people who we thought their voices were unrecoverable, people are finding extremely creative and extremely convincing ways of recovering these voices, right? So, uh, uh, and maybe just give you one example of this. There's been some interesting research trying to correlate what we know of climate history in pre-contact Australia with (laughs) Aboriginal Australian oral tales about distant historical events, right? And it's been pretty well documented that mm-hmm. that that you didn't need his, uh, historical records in the European archival sense in order to preserve the knowledge that there was a flood even several thousand years ago. So all of this is interesting to me because both of these points from both of these angles, both the fact that the history of 19th century uh, bureaucrats in Prague or whatever on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, coming from the other direction, the history of pre-contact Australia, both of these are kind of converging in a way that it seems to me challenges the distinction you want to make between memory and history. Does that make sense? It totally does make sense. And and I want to clarify that I don't necessarily think that history cannot grapple with certain facts or is incapable of adapting to new types of sources. New, I think what it really comes down to is a difference in 
purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the whole reason that we need a word like his, historical memory mm -hmm. uh, rather than just history is that historical memory is present oriented and mm -hmm. right. it, okay. it, it's, it's supposed to be useful to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And I think it can, ex I, I think there are sometimes practices within what we call historical memory that then go back and inform what scholarly historians do and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really think it's, it's not necessarily a difference in capability uh, right. as in like, you know, the kind of musty old historians aren't capable of understanding right. x or y and i think it's more a difference in in purpose and, right. and in orientation okay. and yeah go ahead yeah that's the presentism you you brought up and that's super interesting right. to me um to think about i think shortly before we left new york last uh august i think i was in a taxi or something and the driver i I forget, I know, I know this was in New York, I forget the circumstances, but mm -hmm. some, someone, just a random conversation with some guy asks me, what do you do? I lied, like I sometimes do. <laughs> I'm actually a philosopher. Sometimes I claim to be a historian. It makes things a little bit easier. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so, so I tell this guy in New York, let's, let's say it was a taxi driver that I'm a historian. And he's like, oh yeah, that's really important today. And for a second mm -hmm. there, I'm like, what do you mean? Are you being sarcastic? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but of course what he means, this uh, idea that, uh, that filters out into the widespread public attitudes now is that that's important today because of our pressing social and political issues. Right, right? Yeah. In my dusty oblivious way, I said it kind of in order to shut the conversation down, whereas if for him, under the, the, the circumstances in the United States in the summer of 2020, it rather enlivens the conversation. So right. It, this is this is I think the kind of difference that you're speaking to between living history and dusty history, you might call it. Right, though I would like you were saying, you know, I think if you read contemporary historians, there's nothing dusty about a lot of the work that they're they're doing. Like a, a book that I thought of is uh, Vincent Brown's Tacky's Revolt, which is this oh, account yeah. of of the largest uh, or or a large late 18th century slave rebellion in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, you know, there are records of the troop movements and the kind of British strategy. But uh, what Brown does, kind of within the limits of scholarly history, he's still speculating about the political objectives of yeah. this army of enslaved people on the basis of military movements that are recorded, because we, we don't have what they said they were planning to do. Right. But by looking at the fact that they were moving toward the coast and trying to establish a position here where they might be able to communicate with the Spanish colonies to get aid. So, so absolutely, I think historians can do so much in that vein. Uh, to your point about uh, the kind of 2020-ish interest in history is just something that, you know, great, we can use it, it enlivens. Uh, you know, I actually think that um, often one of the best things about the fact that history is not interested in what people need uh, is that you can never really predict what history is going to be necessary to people. So even though it might seem like there's an opposition between the presentism of, his, of historical memory and the fidelity to just the 
scholarly work of looking at the past of history, often those who are making use of the past are drawing on the scholarship of people who were working before that past was seen as particularly relevant. One more concern about presentism, and then maybe we can move on to other issues, uh, is that one fears that this opens up the possibility of misuse of history to people Mm -hmm. in ways that we would want to prevent. Uh, The example that comes to mind for me recently is the way in which Martin Luther King has been adapted and distorted and squeezed into every purpose imaginable every Martin Luther King day, including seasonal sales (laughs) at stores, as well as opportunity for the GOP to claim his legacy for themselves, and even for the FBI to send out a tweet um, saying, let's honor MLK's <laughs> legacy. And, you a know... A great Twitter uh, moment. <laughs> right. In a way, you you might fear that that any one of those, those parties, the mm-hmm. GOP or Macy's or the FBI, could come back to you and say, hey, I'm just living in the present, man. I'm just using MLK <laughs> for, for, for our new present purposes. And right. you know, there's some kind of worry there, isn't there, that, that if you allow a historical memory to be kind of present and shaped by your own present concerns, then other people are going to be doing it too, right? And you want to be able mm-hmm. to, point to point to the facts about the past and say, but those are the facts. Absolutely. And, and so this is where the work of um, Michel Rolf Truyot, okay, uh, yeah. this great book, Silencing the Past, I think has really been a guide for me. Uh, so he discusses the silence, what he calls the silences of the archive. And there are kind of four levels. There's the moment when historical facts are recorded and Mm -hmm. some are and some are not. There's the moment when they're archived and, you know, some are made available easily and some are not. Then there's the moment when they're narrativized and then there's the moment when their significance is determined. Mm -hmm. And Basically, what he lays out in this book is it's necessary to historicize the way that people are using history, because I don't think it's something you can stop people from doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know I, I, don't, I think public memory is something that is someone is going to be making use of it, whether it's the state or corporations or, you know, private individuals, somebody is going to be turning history to their purposes. So I guess my answer to that is just there does need to be funding and protection of the traditional historical enterprise. And there needs to be attention paid to how that enterprise is adapted by those who have other purposes. Mm -hmm. That's a perfectly commonsensical answer to my perhaps needless problematizing. Um, No, no, I don't think it's needless at all. I mean, you know, a a less reasonable way to put it might be just that I think the the war over history is, will, is ongoing and, and, you know, will, will not end. And I, I think to, to pretend that uh, it's possible to not engage 
on the level of the public reception of history and the, mm-hmm. the public make the public and political making use of history is th- that kind of work has to be done. It's just that I think the traditional historical work also has to be protected. Right, right. I'm wondering if you can, if we can gain some insight about the uses and potentials of historical memory by talking in a bit more detail about the uh, slavery's revolt reenactment. You know, I think about different kinds of historical reenactment. And a long time ago, when I was a kid, I was surrounded by people who were involved in, I think it's called the Society for Creative Anachronism, people Mm. who do medieval reenactments. And as I recall, I could be misremembering, but I I think uh, their slogan was the past the way it should have been, not the way it was, (laughs) which was just kind of aggressively kind of saying, we're doing something different here that, you know, kind of bled into the world of like Dungeons and Dragons style fantasy in ways that were always pretty unseemly to me. But uh, then I was also long familiar with Civil War reenactment, and mm-hmm. I always got a different sort of bad vibe from those guys, right? <laughs> with the sense that, well, first of all, who would want to play a Confederate, right? And you need people to play both sides, but there's got to be something wrong with at least <laughs> one of the sides. But then, you know, I only learned about the different the varieties of reenactment of the sort you described in your piece when I read this piece. I had no idea Hmm. that was going on before. And that seems to me to raise all sorts of other questions. And maybe I can just ask you bluntly a two-part question. Okay. What are they trying to get out of this when they do this, first of all? And second of all, is this morally salutary? Do you believe that this does people good? Mm -hmm. So I I would have to, I I, I can't make a blanket statement about all kinds of practices of of reenactment if they're morally salutary. So for example, the the Underground Railroad reenactments I looked at, one of the things that was fascinating to me about them is that they had been used for purposes that I agreed with and that I did not agree with. So there was this beautiful sense of recovering the spirit of resistance of enslaved people and and using that uh, both to inspire Black youth and uh, to make youth from other backgrounds uh, feel as though they understood that history and were part of that history of struggle. But at the same time, I found a, a pretty dark aspect of it where it was being used by fairly conservative forces in the black community in the Twin Cities as a kind of scared straight program, as in, you know, we're going to take you out into the woods and terrify you and make you feel what your ancestors went through so that you will be law abiding, so you will not do anything that risks your freedom by committing crimes, by getting in trouble with the law. And so, so that's a kind of troubling use of of this historical trauma really almost as an instrument of social control. So so I I just want to start by saying I think there's no easy way to just pass judgment uh, on on all of these as as one. Um, But to go back to your first question, which is what do you think uh, this kind of reenactment is trying to to get at? Uh, So so one of the things that really attracted 
me to the slave rebellion reenactment is that most commemorations return to uh, moments that did have a major effect on the historical timeline. You know, mm -hmm. this is when we won our independence. This is when we defeated the rebels. This is when we walked on the moon, whatever it is. This was returning to a moment that really had no obvious sequel, had no obvious effect on, because the rebellion was crushed and the ringleaders were executed. Others were sold away or just returned to their condition of enslavement. And in fact, the record of the, or, or news of the rebellion was really suppressed even at the time because Louisiana had just become a territory of the United States. And there was actually some fear among planters in Louisiana that this would delay their accession as a full state into the union if it seemed as though there was so much civil unrest there. And, and so what attracted me to returning to a moment like this that was not part of a kind of chain of events that we recognize as leading to the present is that it emphasizes the role of contingency mm -hmm. in history. It, it emphasizes that if this had gone differently, we might be living in a different country. If this yeah. rebellion had been successful, perhaps the southeastern United States might not have been what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps slavery would have been abolished in that area and the, the whole course of the history of the country could have been different. And, and I think the important thing for the artist was getting people to imagine uh, a way beyond the status quo in the present. So if these enslaved people who the entire society they lived in mm -hmm. was systematized, uh, and oriented towards extraction and domination, and yet they were able to imagine overthrowing this system, we should be able to look at things that seem immutable in our own political circumstances and imagine a way through them. Um, last point about this. So I think this was made particularly powerful by a direct parallel that the rebellion reenactment created between the 1811 landscape of Louisiana, where there were sugar plantations all along the Mississippi River. And the contemporary landscape, which as I saw as a participant in this reenactment, uh, is covered with industrial facilities, oil refineries, chemical plants. Mm. It's actually known, the area is known as Cancer Alley. Oh, and, uh, and there's actually a long history both of these oil companies uh, purchasing these former plantations and often exploiting the descendants of enslaved people who lived in these areas and of lawsuits from black communities in these areas against these oil companies, which in many cases are, are ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that was another aspect of the, the reenactment is that uh, Dred Scott was very consciously juxtaposing this rebellion against the plantation economy and, and against the, the domination of slavery with the struggle against, uh, you know, the, the carbon economy mm -hmm. and the environmental racism that continues in, in Louisiana today. And, and, you know, this point was made so simply just by the fact that following the root of the original uprising took us through this landscape where right. that's happening now. Right. Right, right. So it's mobilizing well-documented 
events from the past mm -hmm. to uh, frame and expose uh, current uh, crisis. Is that how you would understand it? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then I, I think of, you know, Walter Benjamin speaking about the past, you know, rising up in a moment and kind of forming a constellation with events in, in the present mm -hmm. uh, as something that that form of reenactment tries to evoke. You mentioned Civil War reenactments. And, mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that's interested me most uh, about the reenactments I've looked at dealing with resistance to slavery uh, are that they don't try to create a reality effect of the mm -hmm. past in the same way. Right. Uh, you know, in, with Civil War reenactments, it gets so intense that I've read that people will, they'll actually like pee on their button, their buttons for their jackets so they get the <laughs> right kind of patina. Uh, and it, it's, it's all about the, the visual spectacle yeah. of looking like you're from back then. But uh, for these Underground Railroad reenactments, kids would be doing these in sweatpants and, uh -huh. oh, and shirts see, yeah. and it would be, and, and the reality effect was supposed to be internal uh -huh. rather than spectatorial. Uh -huh. And Dred Scott's reenactment, it did involve costumes. It did uh -huh. involve, you know, carrying rifles and having flags, but it, it also made no attempt to disguise the present surroundings that we marched through and that was mm -hmm. part of the part of the point was this disjuncture which i think is very it, it both makes the past's uh inflection of the present more powerful and i think it also deals with some of that concern you were talking about where historical memory can try to warp uh the past mm -hmm. uh, making it very clear that there is a seam between these two, I think, can help address that concern that an illusion is is being created by, mm -hmm. by keeping keeping people aware of the fact that this is a this is a ritual. This is not like trying to pass for the past. One thing that strikes me, and again, we are trying to zero in on a definition of memory. Right. And mm -hmm. of course, there are all sorts of levels of memory or connotations of the term that we're not even addressing. For example, <laughs> the Proustian yes. memory of a distant autobiographical experience. We're not talking about the neuroscience of memory and the role of the hippocampus versus the neocortex and all of that <laughs> stuff in the storage of long term memories and so on. But I still feel like if we want a definition of memory in the sense that preoccupies you and about which you're a sort of expert, it is worthwhile to consider all of the different senses of the term. And one of the ways to do that that I've been thinking about is, it's a weird question to ask, but is there any sense in which you can say you remember the slave rebellion of which they're doing historical reenactments. Now, I'll, I'll just expand a little bit so, so that you don't think I'm like talking about past lives or anything wild like that. There's a sense in which history is subjective for all of us. And I think about hearing my grandmother's Arkansas accent when I was five years old and not yet knowing 
anything about Dust Bowl migrations and mm-hmm. other things, you know, not knowing any facts about the world at all. And nonetheless, sensing something that later, once mm. I started to learn about the world, fills out these pre-erudite, basic experiences of the people around me and that mm. form my earliest memory. I, so there's a strange, and I, you know, I could, I could adduce other examples. I can remember kind of somehow sincerely thinking that my own grandfather was George Washington. Um, <laughs> maybe not exactly George Washington himself, but some kind of like avatar of George Washington, right? And then he at I, least had a wig and a big horse. Right. Um, and then, you know, so there's a sense in which memory and history are intertwined because what history actually is, is a kind of later accretion of facts over basic and very intimately subjective experiences. Does that make sense? It absolutely does, which is why I think historical memory has a sort of parasitic relationship, uh, not in the negative sense, but yeah. it depends It depends on the apparatus of the other forms of memory. Mm-hmm. So if you really are going to feel a personal connection to the past uh, and you're going to try to construct an experience where you know, something you didn't live through somehow becomes part of your own personal experience, you're going to have to draw on the senses. You're going to have to draw on the affection and feelings of kinship that you have for particular real people mm-hmm. and places. And, it, and it's almost as though the, the effort to create a historical memory piggybacks off of those more organic forms of memory and and tries to create a link between them. This is one thing that I thought is so brilliant about Derek Walcott's poetry is is that he really, he takes the question of history and he makes it a question of landscape. And a quote of his that always sticks with me is light has never had epics. And, Uh. you know, and, and I think this simple idea that people in the past were in a very real sense looking at the same ocean. They were walking by the same river. They felt the same breeze. As simple as that sounds, I think it's the keystone of why these these experiences of reenactment and ritual really work. Because they they attempt to create sensory experiences that you just, you are feeling, you really are there, and say to you, you know, there may be a lot that people in the past were feeling and thinking that you can never experience. But if you can draw together a kind of a gathering of sensory experience that you did share, that kind of spark can leap between past and present. And and I I thought about this a lot when I was uh, traveling in Benin and Senegal and kind of looking Mm. at the the heritage tourism industry there. And and one of the most interesting forms of commemorative monument, I think, in the world is the the door of no return, of of which there are several. And uh, the, the most famous is on Gore Island in off the coast of Dakar in Senegal. Mm -hmm. And 
It's a French colonial house that was once a departure point for the slave trade, uh, less so than the tourist industry there likes to pretend, but it was involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at this kind of mini dock attached to this house, uh, you know, you, you walk through a room and there's just a kind of empty door frame that looks out at the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this, this, so, and it's undeniably just powerful to be, to stand in a dark room uh, in an old house and just look out at the Atlantic Ocean. And I think particularly uh, if, you, if you have a kind of experience of, if you are a black person in the Americas and you know that you're mm -hmm. descended from that experience, it's impossible not to feel something. But I think all of these experiences of commemoration draw on the natural environment almost as an alternative to the built environment, which has been so much uh, the representative of historical memory uh, in Europe. Mm -hmm. and, and so another example I think of is with these Underground Railroad reenactments, it's the experience of being disoriented in the dark at mm -hmm. night. And that this is an experience that you can share with, yeah. with those who ran away from slavery. In, in the New Orleans, uh, reenactment uh, or the 1811 rebellion reenactment, you know, it was literally following in their footsteps. This is the same landscape. And in fact, you know, it's a landscape that it may look different than it did then, but you could make an argument that it's shaped by the same forces of expansionist extractive capitalism, just a, a new generation of that same. So, so I think nature and landscape are a very important part of drawing that connection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One last question that can help us zero in on uh, conclusions, um, though I'm already predicting we're going to have looser conclusions than Socrates <laughs> would have hoped for in terms of definitions, but that's just the nature of the topic, I think. I recall uh, uh, something that really impressed me in a book by David Abulafia, and I'm, I'm forgetting the title, mm -hmm. but something about a history of the Atlantic world that starts circa 1300. So very intentionally uh, well before Columbus. And when, you know, in the early chapters of this book, kind of necessarily he's not looking at ship records or the travels or experiences of individual people. And he's right. drawing on some scholarship. I would have to, I would have to look this up, kind of trying to probabilistically uh, speculate on the likelihood of West African fishing vessels being pulled out to sea and going all the way across to the Americas mm -hmm. as a result of ocean currents and therefore right. pre-Columbian Af African-American contacts, mm -hmm. right? And the conclusion is that it's pretty light. Um, we, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing definitive about this and there's no smoking gun. Yeah. And this is an interesting, this gets us to an interesting question that we seem to have been uh, orbiting around. Where there's no smoking gun and where there are no documents, we mm -hmm. rely on prob probabilistic speculation and we rely on our imaginations. But one thing that falls out of the picture is that particular West African fisherman who got yes. sucked out to sea. And we, we have to just either make him up 
or stay in the realm of abstraction, you know, some West African fisherman or other. And there, then, the question becomes, whose experience are we reconstructing or speculating about when we're limited to that kind of history, right? And one is possibly just saying it's humanity in general. One is saying it's the experiences of a particular community, particular region of the world. Is it when the individuals fall out, uh, as in the example I gave, when the individuals are inaccessible, or even we could talk about this, Moses Lucas, your ancestor, uh, (laughs) when we move beyond him and we find that there are no more accessible individuals, is Mm -hmm. that where the thing you're calling memory kicks in? That's a really interesting question. And, and this is why I'm fascinated of the, with, by the work of writers like Sadia Hartman mm. and John Keane. So mm. Sadia Hartman is probably the most famous practitioner of this, and she has this idea of critical fabulation. Yeah. Um, but there there's, are many Black writers who are engaged in this kind of work, and it's, it's kind of dealing in specifics, taking archival material, taking facts that are known and and particular individuals, and then speculating in such a way that you're not contradicting any of the known facts, even as you're moving beyond them. So uh, one of my favorite stories in John Keane's book, Counter Narratives, is is, uh, it's called Manahatta. Mm -hmm. And it's it's about this man, Juan Dominguez, uh, who was a Black Portuguese sailor who became the first permanent settler uh, who was not from uh, Manhattan Island, Mm -hmm. in Manhattan Island. He he married into the the local Algonquin peoples. Uh And so very little is known about him except that he defected from the ship where he was a sailor and then he was a trader and had married a local uh, bride. But Keene turns this into, you know, imagining what he might have felt making this decision mm-hmm. and 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 kind of presenting this as you know an alternative origin story to mm-hmm. the experiment of the america so so i think there's something very powerful that can be done by attending to those specifics and moving beyond them very carefully uh, that writers like hartman and keen have shown the way but there is of course a moment where there are no longer individuals mm-hmm. and i think that's where uh, these, you know, specific places and environments and and forms of, you know, physically reenacting a certain experience become a substitute for that knowledge of individuals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, if, if you can go to this, you may not know the names of people who, you know, marched from the inland city of Abome to Ouida, who were then shipped across the Atlantic, but you can go to those places, uh, you can see what the land looked like, you can feel how it felt to, you know, make that walk uh, to the shore, and and that becomes a kind of starting point for feeling a connection to that history, and then hopefully using that to orient uh, yourself in in the present. And, and, And just as a kind of uh, something that I wanted to mention is that all of this inquiry that I've done about memory in the African diaspora has really been guided by the theology of Haitian Vodun. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the most interesting things to me about this religious tradition is that the deities are not kind of transcendent entities that stand outside of time. 
<laughs> they are spirits that actually are accumulations of mm -hmm. the spirits of human beings who have really lived. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are particular archetypes, families of spirits. And, and when you die, your spirit may join one of those families of spirits. So, so it's a, it's an, a fascinating kind of reconciliation of the need to have an individual representative of the past, but also recognizing that there are many multitudes yeah. who are not, could not be named. And, and, and to get back to the presentism question, these deities in Vodun really only manifest through the experience of ritual possession. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so that, that fact of presentism is very, it, it's almost a, a theology that, uh, a theology of historical memory that incorporates uh -huh. the fact that you need to have a physical experience right. uh, and that history has meaning when it, you know, is comes into present circumstances and are molded by them. And, and just, I just want to give some credit where credit is due, but there's an excellent book uh, yeah. by scholar Colin Dyan called Haiti History and the okay. Gods. Yeah, I think I've, I've seen that before. Yeah, okay, now this is an excellent recommendation. I'm gonna... And it's, it's just a, a brilliant consideration of the way that yeah. Haitian history has been encoded into practices, uh, right. very physically active practices of of belief. And, right. and I, in my own work, I've tried to establish a connection between reenactment practices in the United States mm -hmm. and Afro-diasporic religious practices uh -huh. of embodied historical memory. Right. It's pretty amazing. It's almost as if the challenge of the absence or the dearth of documentary sources of what counts as historical source in the narrow sense, this challenge when faced up to actually gives you a much richer access to the thing you're after. The thing that falls away is yeah. the individuals with their with their birth certificates and their vital records and their diaries and whatever else a historian might value. What comes into clearer relief is the lived experience of many different people whose names we do not know. Does that sound absolutely. like Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think there's some particular ways in which the practices of memory in the African diaspora change, can, can change the way we look at history more broadly. Mm -hmm. One of those is I think there's something in, intrinsically anti-nationalist mm -hmm. about looking at those memory practices because you, you know, you have to contend, you know, you said you believed your grandfather was George Washington when you were, when you were a kid. In a uh, weird way, I, think, I still yeah. believe it, which is, uh, <laughs> I mean, I know he's not, but, and yet he is, right? It's weird. <laughs> Maybe you need an, an exorcism. Right. Uh, but um, I, I think there's, you know, when you have to look at histories where, you know, people lost their national identity, yeah. they lost their languages, it, it becomes impossible to kind of do this matryoshka doll projection back yeah. in time and like, ah, you know, as they teach in French schools, like my ancestors, the Gauls, or our ancestors, yeah. the Gauls, you, you're made aware of something which is true of all human societies, but which is particularly pronounced in the history of African diaspora, which is yeah. that 
nation people are always being ripped out of nations or leaving yeah. them nations cease to exist and they they join with each other and so if you want to imagine yourself in the past and have a visceral connection with the past the question of people like me in the mm -hmm. past has to be much more complicated and yeah. much broader yeah and then i think also i think the practices of memory i've looked at really emphasize contingency and things that almost happened or, or might have happened right. uh, rather than commemorating what brought us up to this point. Right. Thought about this George Washington thing a lot recently. Uh, oh man, I don't have any time to go into this, but I had a long correspondence with, with Skip Gates, with Henry Louis Gates about genealogy oh, really? recently. And he had a genio uh, 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 an ancestry test sent to me to encourage me to, t to take it. Oh my because God. I, I told him I'm uh, against this in principle. And he was like, well, maybe I can change your mind. Here's, here's a DNA test. And, um, <laughs> and so I took the test and, and then I didn't learn anything more from that than I mean, there was some little surprises, not much. I knew who I was genetically, mm -hmm. but it did compel me to think and to try to articulate reasons why I've, I have mixed feelings about this, but one thing that I was thinking in connection with this is it is indeed a very particular kind of historical and ideological implantation in the world to be able to think, my grandfather is George Washington. To, to be able to have that thought when you're like four years old, both presumes that, you know, in my case, that I've thought my grandfather was just an, uh, you know, a trustworthy paternal figure who had been around <laughs> a long time. And I also thought the mythical founder of my country was a trustworthy paternal <laughs> founder, of the land, right? Yeah. And that, that presumes so much, and there's so much to tease out of all of that. And, you know, the, again, you know, I joked about actually believing it, but the way that that gets implanted is, again, you know, something that, so to speak, prior to history that we experience mm. as memory and then history gets uh, layered over it. And everyone's experience, whether it's diasporic, like the one you're describing, or not diasporic, like the one I'm describing, where you are mm -hmm. confident that you know where you come from, whether it's true or not is another question, you know, whether you're right. justified in this belief is another question, but there's so much imaginative power that, that goes into this before we start filling it out with facts that in a way what you're doing is, and your interest in, in reconstruction and historical memory is taking that imaginative experience seriously alongside mm -hmm. the facts. Right. Is that a good way to put it? That's absolutely a good way to put it. Just I have to mention, I, I just think it's so funny. So uh, when I first met uh, Professor Gates as an undergraduate, uh, this is actually he also gave me uh, a coupon for an ancestry <laughs> test. Well, <laughs> so something we have in, in common. But actually, the first thing he said to me was that I looked like Prince. Uh, and then he handed me a coupon for for twenty three and me. Um, <laughs> but I, I share your your skepticism about the the genetic genealogical, not least because I've I've uh, 
I've watched my own percentage of, of African ancestry fluctuate over the yeah, years yeah, as, yeah, yeah, as yeah. they're, you know, so it's like, well, you know, one day I'm this, one day I'm a quadroon, you know, where is it going to land? Um, but, you know, I, I am fascinated by it, even though, of course, it means that governments around the world can clone me or whatever. But I, I am I'm very skeptical of the of the genetic taking the place of, of this yeah. more humanistic work of, yeah. of figuring out how you fit uh, in, in the past. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, uh, I don't know if we've arrived at a definition. Today just wasn't one of those days, uh, but I feel like whatever it is, it's agreement. <laughs> I hear some church bells chiming. There we um, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's funny, isn't it? If we can do just a few minutes of post-game wrap-up, I realized a few minutes in that, first of all, this was just the most fascinating conversation I've had in or out of a podcast in a long time. Um, oh, I'm glad. But second of all, the definition just really isn't the point, right? <laughs> um, I know. I'm sorry. I feel like I've resisted the format. No, uh, <laughs> no, no. no. That's, that's all the better. I mean, in a way, it might reveal to us the limitedness of the Socratic model as a form of intellectual pursuit. And if we could go back in time to the Agora and talk to Socrates, and, you know, we, we might well want to say like who cares what the necessary and sufficient conditions are you know this is so, an <laughs> i mentioned walcott's poem the sea is history begins socratically where are your battles monuments martyrs so i think even <laughs> ar arriving at some of these practices of yeah. memory uh yeah. has happened uh in a kind of socratic uh, response to to uh, you know the cathedrals and uh, chronicles yeah. and and all of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyhow, we are in agreement to the extent that I don't think we've disagreed on anything, <laughs> but we are. <laughs> we, but that's still probably technically aporia, right? Because because we don't have a definition. So, like, relative to the rules of the game on this podcast, we're in Aparia, okay, I admit it. But uh, kind of relative to the spirit of this conversation, we're in agreement, right? Does that sound <laughs> the, good? The price, the price is undefined. Right, the price is undefined. Divide by zero. Uh, <laughs> um, so just to wrap up, and mm -hmm. then we'll call it a night, you have been listening to the What Is X podcast. I'm your host, Justin E.H. Smith, and with me today has been Julian Lucas, a writer and critic based in Brooklyn, who is an expert and a very serious thinker on the legacies of the African diaspora. So thank you so much for being with me here today, Julian. Thank you, Justin. This has been such a pleasure.